Welcome to Rental Equip Talk Radio with your host, Donald Charbonnet. This is the radio program designed for industry insiders, as well as anyone interested in getting into the rental equipment industry. Now, here is Donald Charbonnet. Hello, and welcome to Rental Equip Talk Radio. I'm your host, Donald Charbonnet, broadcasting from New Orleans. Again this week, a big thank you to the many listeners we have. Tell your friends and associates, help spread the word. And remember, you can always listen on demand after the show, and let me know if there's a certain guest or subject you'd like to have presented on the show, and I'll do my best to get them. You can always reach me at rentalequiptalkradio at gmail.com. Today's show is sponsored by WGL Consulting. If you need representation, get in touch with WGL. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. My guest today is James Waite, very well known to the equipment rental and sales industry. James, welcome to the show. Thank you, Donald. Glad to be here. I've invited James to, to come and discuss the subject of buying and selling uh, equipment companies in general. So, James, instead of reading your long and impressive resume, uh, as we've done in the past, just please start by telling us what you do. Sure. Uh, I'm an equipment industry uh, corporate and M&A lawyer. I've been in the industry in one capacity or another for almost uh, all of my 27 years as a lawyer. I started Rentex Industries, an equipment rental roll-up effort in Denver. We acquired about 100 locations over a two-year period with me acting as in-house counsel. Uh, eventually, we were sold to HSS and became HSS Rentex, and with me continuing to act as outside general counsel for most of the next eight years, during which um, I also immersed myself in aircraft leasing, ultimately being named as CEO of ICC USA, an American subsidiary of a Canadian air freight company, while also serving as the Canadian company's general counsel. Uh, I handled the sell-off of most of Rentex's operations uh, in the U.S. in 2004, and shortly thereafter wrote the American Rental Association's book on rental contracts and related equipment transactions. Um, I've since become the ARA's sole national referral counsel for the roughly 5,500 member companies and also served as CFO of Dental Planet, a dental equipment dealer located in Texas, a company I ultimately helped sell off in 2012. Um, Nowadays, I split time between helping equipment dealers and rental companies with legal issues uh, and helping them value their businesses and buying and selling them. So, I guess what I'm curious mostly is about the latter part, and and what are you doing to help them value and buy and sell businesses? Um, Well, as I mentioned, I've been doing mergers and acquisitions for most of my career, and so I've had the good fortune to have handled dozens of purchases and sales of equipment and related businesses, everything from rental companies to dealerships to airlines throughout North America and around the world. Um, During that 25-year span, um, I, which is to say my staff, built a large database of industry participants. It's over 10,000 dealerships and rental companies now and still growing. Um, not to mention hundreds of contacts in insurance, software, parts, supplies, and importantly, financing. Uh, so last year, at Nancy Levy's suggestion, most of my clients know Nancy, I got together with a few friends of mine in the equipment industry um, and put together a consulting company called WGL Consulting. And specifically, to help equipment dealers and lessors value, buy, sell, and finance their businesses as well as their equipment. And and how is that going with WGL? Really well. Um, we've brought on dozens of potential buyers and sellers and have already closed some deals and have several more in the works uh, that we're working towards closing now. Interestingly, we're getting as much interest from potential buyers as we are from sellers. My original thought was that we'd have a large pool of sellers participating in a sort of beauty contest with a few more or less finicky buyers. Um, But what's actually happened is um, um, it's proven to be much more an even mix. We've got almost as many buyers as we do sellers, um, which is making for a really active environment. Most exciting is the fact that we're now being contacted by overseas manufacturers Uh, looking not only for sellers, but also for organic growth opportunities. Everyone seems to want to tap the U.S. market, which should come as no surprise, given that it's the largest in the world. Um, If we can finally convince the politicians to tamp down the geopolitical risk and keep them stepping on their own toes with overregulation and new taxes, that state affairs should continue well into the future. I'm I'm sure most people in the industry would agree with that. Uh, 
can you tell us a little bit about how the buying and selling process works? I mean, I, I know that there are a tremendous number of potential buyers and sellers who might be interested in pursuing a new opportunity, but then they're not really entirely sure of where to start. So if, if you don't mind, walk me through it. And, and I'm sure many of our listeners would like to know how to start the process and, and exactly what to expect. I'm sure. And let's start with uh, a list of basics, and then I'll circle back to some specifics. Um, first, a dealer typically decides he wants to sell his business and then takes the usual steps to prep the business for sale. He cleans up the books, gets his financial statements in order, completes facilities updates, closes and settles litigation, potential claims, gets rid of deteriorated assets, and uh, signs contracts and gets them in place for all material issues, including dealership agreements, uh, maybe move from real estate into a separate LLC, et cetera, and then start looking for buyers. Uh, next, most, most prospective business sellers uh, learn a couple things along the way. Um, uh, the guy who's, certain who's going to buy the business is either no longer interested or was never financially capable of doing it in the first place. Uh, and secondly, it's, it, it, he finds it's a lot more difficult, not to mention dangerous, to find potential buyers uh, than he thought it would be. Well, when you, <laughs> you kind of catch me with that word dangerous. What do you mean by dangerous? This is supposed to be a simple process. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that were so. Uh, by dangerous, I mean that the, it's dangerous to the seller's existing business. Once people, particularly the seller's customers, suppliers, employees, and competitors, learn that the business is for sale, they tend to react in a few fairly predictable ways. One, customers start looking for alternative suppliers uh, and stop buying equipment from the seller based on their fear that, among other things, they won't be able to get service and or parts support any longer at the same levels or on the same terms as they did in the past. Um, Two, suppliers tend to put them on COD, start scrutinizing their contracts, and start looking for alternative buyers. Um, employees start either looking for new jobs or plan to spend big, real, or imagined raises or bonuses. Um, competitors start spreading the word that the, the, the dealer or rental company is selling out or in financial trouble, and everyone starts asking questions, burning up time, uh, and spending far too much productive time speculating about what might happen to the business. All of this is as predictable as it is understandable, and unfortunately, all of it is potentially extremely harmful to the seller's business. There's probably, there probably isn't a way to keep a lid on all of it, uh, but fortunately, sellers can do a great deal to avoid or limit most of it. And how would you go about doing, limiting those types of things? Well, a few things come to mind. Um, one, hire an intermediary to market the business and make sure that intermediary understands the equipment industry and has a good reputation for integrity. Hiring an intermediary whose sole interest is in generating commission can literally destroy a business or at the very least do irreparable damage and expose the seller to big post-closing liabilities. Um, next, create a confidential information memorandum that explains enough about the seller's business to entice potential buyers without making it too easy to identify the seller, except in those rare cases where the seller actually isn't concerned about revealing his identity uh, or that of his business. Um, and, and third, uh, insist that each potential buyer sign a confidentiality and non-disclosure agreement. These sound fairly simple, but they can come in very different forms and have very different effects. For instance, seller's forms tend to be lengthy and fairly stringent, while buyer's forms, of course, tend to be very short, simple, and much less burdensome. Um, buyers also sometimes insist that their sellers sign reciprocal agreements obligating them to keep the buyer's information in strict confidence as well. Other terms can vary substantially. For example, they may include non-solicitation agreements with respect to, say, employees, um, and in some cases even non-competition agreements, though that's fairly rare. Uh, but most include at least some level of confidentiality requirement along with terms in between 18 months and three years. Uh, I should note also that even after a confidentiality agreement has been signed, it still pays to be fairly careful about what information is disclosed to whom. Um, aside from the above concerns about uh, or the, the concerns I mentioned previously uh, regarding public knowledge of the fact that business is for sale, 
there remains the possibility that a supposed potential buyer might feel compelled to use portions of the information it receives to compete with the seller. Um, among other things, that should compel the seller to include in its confidentiality agreement a supplemental obligation of the recipient to refrain from using the information he receives in connection with an organic expansion zone, acknowledging that the, the, some violations of these obligations can be difficult to prove and therefore difficult to enforce. Um, but this should motivate most sellers to insist on um, good faith deposits before disclosing certain levels of potentially more damaging confidential information. Ultimately, if a proposed seller really wants to sell his business, shouldering some disclosure and or use risk is simply going to be unavoidable. Um, nonetheless, sellers should limit such risks to the extent it's realistic to do so, knowing that to a large degree this will depend on the nature of the specific relationship between the prospective buyer and the prospective seller. So, James, I want to go back to the intermediary uh, issue for, for just a minute. By intermediary, you mean like a business broker, right? That's right. Um, and you need someone with broad contacts in the industry and enough experience to understand the nuances, nuances I mentioned a, a moment ago, um, as well as what it takes to get these deals done. Um, given that for most sellers, this is a one-time shot at getting it right, they can't afford to let someone try or learn on the fly. Um, so this is a case where uh, it absolutely must be done right in all phases in order for the parties to walk away successful and happy. Um, brokering or acting as a finder, by the way, is only a small part of a much larger picture. Um, um, if it wasn't obvious from what I said before, understanding how to prepare a business for sale, put a reasonable valuation on it, which, by the way, I should mention, is almost never done properly. Um, market that business, negotiate a sale, and get that sale closed is a far more delicate process than most people realize. That's the reason less than 10% of prospective deals ever reach the closing table. Um, keeping buyers and sellers motivated and interested in keeping their attorneys from each other's throats can be a real challenge. <laughs> well, I mean, what what other functions does a broker serve, if any? Uh, well, critically, the broker acts as a buffer between the seller and the prospective buyers. Remember that, as we discussed, um, disclosing the fact that your business is for sale can do irreparable damage. So, in, in addition to seeking out, identifying, and pre-qualifying potential buyers, in most cases, an intermediary must protect the seller by avoiding disclosure of that seller's identity during the marketing process. Um, that can be tricky because most, because most industry participants make it a point to know who their competitors are, where they are, what they're offering for sale or rental, and to the extent they can find out how they're faring financially. Um, they commonly contact their intermediaries trying to ferret out exactly who's for sale and for how much. Often, not so much because they're interested in buying that business as because they're interested in knowing who's for sale, uh, what they're asking, and why they're selling. Now, most astute brokers know this and make reasonable efforts to protect their clients and, again, their clients' information um, by obtaining signed confidentiality agreements before disclosing material information. Uh, but it's sometimes hard to tell. So brokers, um, brokers who are good at it uh, stay on their toes with respect to that issue and are more or less conservative in terms of what they make available um, uh, to, to, with respect to inquiries and just for the sake of protecting their sellers. So, I mean, so obviously, brokers put in a tremendous amount of time in, in working these deals and getting them done. And all this doesn't come for free, I'm sure. So, I mean, what should you expect to pay a broker for these services? How does that work? Yeah, you know, it's between 5 and 10% of the, uh, the business value in most cases, but it depends on a number of factors including the size of the business, its relative appeal to potential buyers, the size of the buyer pool, the complexity of the business and the proposed transaction, the personalities involved, um, and, of course, the level of effort required of the broker. Um, as you might guess, smaller businesses tend to require higher commissions as a percentage of the value of the business, mostly because brokers already know they'll spend as much, nearly as much time on these smaller deals as they will on larger deals which, of course, makes smaller deals less appealing, even at higher commission rates. Um, uh, 
so it really comes down to basic economic motivations. Very small businesses often can't find representation at all uh, and have to go alone. Or if they do find it, the broker will probably charge them at least 10%. Um, and they also charge them a hefty upfront marketing fee just to make uh, the time they know they'll have to spend worth spending. And now, medium-sized businesses generally don't suffer from the same issues, but they can expect to still pay commissions of around 6 to 8% with marketing and valuation fees in the five to $25,000 range, um, while large businesses will typically see, uh, see lower percentage commission rates but higher flat fees, um, this time charged to account for the additional work involved um, uh, um, and required of the broker, as well as the additional risk involved should the broker get something wrong, particularly with respect to the business valuation and information memorandum, um, um, if the broker is involved in preparing those. So it seems like a lot of money when, when you first take a glance at it, but so why is it so much? Um, well, if every deal closed, it would be a lot of money. Um, truth is, for every one that closes, nine or ten don't, maybe more. And sometimes the parties can't agree on a critical deal term, sometimes due diligence investigations under, uncover issues the buyer can't live with or didn't anticipate. Um, sometimes lawyers can't agree, of course, and sometimes one of the parties gets cold feet or they just don't get along. Um, truth is, there's any of a thousand reasons to kill a deal. In the end, that's why real estate brokers take five or six percent commissions off on what are much simpler deals. It's just a, it's just a must if these folks, um, if these brokers or intermediaries are going to exist at all. Okay, so how do you know which one to choose, and are there a bunch of them out there? Well, there are a bunch out there, um, but only a few have the necessary in- industry experience to do it properly. Um, of those, only a few have I've come across also have the requisite contacts, technical or transactional knowledge, technical knowledge, um, and personality to actually get deals done. Um, I've known a few good ones and plenty of bad ones. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, one deal in particular I recall working on where a broker um, actually recommended to the seller that the broker's buddy, who was a, an industry lawyer, represent both sides of the deal in a series of transactions, obviously an effort to smooth the path to easy closings and large commissions without apparently even considering how the buyer and seller might be harmed by what would inevitably be watered down documents um, from a legal perspective. Um, Incredibly, the lawyer agreed to and actually did actively participate in this charade at the urging of his broker buddy, despite the unavoidable harm to his client. I, I don't know how much he planned to make in that but I, I can only assume he and the broker were planning on taking a long vacation. They probably should have taken it early. Um, I was actually called in on that deal as the lawyer for the seller, um, at which point that broker um, did everything he could to get me removed from the deal. Fortunately, and for the seller anyway, he failed just in time as the, the legal and environmental liabilities were stacking up fast as a result. Uh, of what I consider one of the most unscrupulous brokerage efforts, efforts I've ever witnessed. Um, ironically enough, that broker still got his commission because we did close the deal. Uh, the difference was um, we made certain the necessary protections were included for the benefit of the seller. Um, unfortunately, um, that guy's still around. Um, and from what I'm hearing, he's still conducting business in much the same way. So, after years of warning my clients to steer clear of characters like this, I finally decided to do something about it and give them an alternative. And that's when I started WGL um, with Leon Kaufman and Gates Goza. Um, and I'm happy to say you're participating. Um, in the end, money matters, but so is integrity. And that's what, uh, that's what we've all decided is going to be, uh, be key to our success. And we're going we're gonna to stick to our guns on that and do deals properly. Um, by the way, I should also mention that once in a while, a lawyer might actually act as a scrivener and do that do that properly, and that's someone who just writes the documents necessary to get a deal done without negotiating on behalf of either side, if both parties, buyer and seller, have a clear understanding of what that means and agree to it. That just wasn't the case in the situation I described earlier. Bottom line is, is this. Um, there are only a few people with the qualifications and integrity necessary to do this job properly. 
if something doesn't sound right, call us. We've got lots of experience, um, both on the intermediary side and on the legal side. If nothing else, we can probably provide you with some good pre-qualifying questions for any intermediary you are thinking of hiring and maybe some perspective on the whole process as well. Well, James, it seems like as an attorney, you, you know more about both sides of the deal than uh, some of the other folks that might be out there. And I, I appreciate you mentioning that. I am one of your uh, agents, so to speak, uh, and very excited to, to do that. And I hope some of the deals we're working on come through. Uh, so, okay, so uh, say the seller's done everything that you recommend and a buyer actually wants to buy your client's business. What's the next step? Well, there's no established rule, um, which is why I get so many questions about this. Um, but here in broad terms are, the, are, 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 are some steps to follow. Um, most buyers and sellers will usually execute a term sheet or letter of intent, um, in quotes, an LOI, uh, setting forth a summary of basic terms of transaction up front. For example, price, payment terms, tax effects, sale or merger terms, for example, um, equity or asset sales, mergers or share swaps, etc. Um, asset descriptions, price adjustment mechanisms, business locations, and any real estate involved, sometimes sales, sometimes leases. Um, currency, if it's an overseas deal, liabilities and critical contacts to be assigned and assumed. Possibly a standstill agreement. Uh, that's an agreement not to solicit or continue to negotiate potential sales made by the seller of the business uh, for the benefit of the potential buyer, so the potential buyer is not wasting his time or money. Um, also, deposits or earnest money, and, and possibly breakup fees if the deal doesn't work out. Uh, due diligence terms are important. Closing contingencies also important. For example, the right. The right of the buyer to walk away if due diligence results reveal significant problems with the business, such as business losses, litigation, asset defects, or significant potential environmental liability. Um, holdbacks and earnouts, money held back by the purchaser and security um, for the representations and warranties made by the seller. You want to negotiate that fairly vigorously. Um, any retained equity stake in favor of the seller. Sometimes we see that because the seller wants to retain some upside after closing. Um, a brief description of any employment or consulting agreements to be entered into, particularly by sellers who are going to be asked to stay on after closing, which we see happen quite a lot. Um, an anticipated closing date, of course, um, which, by the way, I get this question a lot. Um, how long does it take? Um, you know, the answer that sounded too much like Jimmy, Jimmy Durante is uh, uh, it takes as long as it takes. I mean, it, we see these deals close in some cases as quickly as three months. Others take a year or longer. Um, typically, we'll see them take around four to six months um, to go from term sheet to closing. Um, um, and then the last paragraph of the term sheet usually states that the agreements contained in the in the document are non-binding other than with respect to a few provisions like confidentiality um, and possibly an agreement to negotiate in good faith, though I will say the Delaware Supreme Court did find some years ago that including an agreement to negotiate in good faith could give a party the right to sue uh, for its breach if the other party is shown to have not acted in good faith. Now, as a general proposition, term sheets or otherwise are viewed by most of the of the, of the sentient world as being unenforceable. So that's going to be a pretty, that's going to be a pretty long leap to enforce a term sheet, but it can happen. Um, so the whole negotiating good faith concept has been called into question. Um, and if you're, if you're really concerned about it, uh, refuse to sign a term sheet with negotiating good faith language in it. Um, so to sum it up, the LOI or term sheet is typically, for the most part, non-binding, but certain provisions can and often are specifically made binding by written agreement of the parties. Well, when you when I when I hear this this list of things, I understand uh, a little bit more about the fees involved and the time that it takes to get something done. So, I mean, the the LOI sounds like a pretty complex document, uh, and this may sound like a foolish question, but I'm sure. Some of our listeners are wondering, why not just use the LOI as a purchase agreement and skip some of the legal fees in the process? <laughs> that's, that's actually a good question, um, particularly given the fact that I've actually had a client do that in the past. Truth is, 
it's possible, um, but doing so can be risky and expensive for a number of reasons. First and foremost, term sheets are generally written, as I said, with the idea that they cannot and will not cover all of the operational, legal, and financial issues involved in a business acquisition. They're just summaries intended to set forth the basics in acknowledgement of the fact that both parties need to gather and process much more information during the due diligence period while the formal purchase and sale agreement is being written, usually with the idea that it will factor in the results of the party's due diligence investigations. So signing that term sheet up front tends to be impossible given the fact that there's so much discovered during due diligence. Consequently, the timing of the term sheet's execution makes it impossible. Beyond that, there's a great deal of legal and tax information that needs to be included. Things like purchase price allocations, indemnity provisions, clawbacks, and a long list of provisions that can look like but really aren't just boilerplate designed to justify more legal fees. Um, you could theoretically include all of that, in quotes, boilerplate language in the term sheet, but if you did, you'd effectively be writing an almost purchase and sale agreement and spending all the legal dollars to do that yet wind up having to do it again when you actually get to the point of due diligence where you're ready to write a final purchase and sale agreement. So in other words, by trying to save money, you probably be costing yourself money in most cases and maybe killing your deal with too much detail in the term sheet. All right, so, so you get through the term sheet and get that signed, and, and what's next? Well, so, so next comes a whole long list of negotiation and documentation for the lawyers um, and critically, due diligence. Now, when I say due diligence, um, uh, uh, people talk like that's a, that's a uh, commonly understood industry term that everybody should know the meaning of immediately. In fact, it's, it's much more of a broad term that has different meanings depending on the deal. Um, for our purposes, basically, it's just the buyer's investigation of the seller's business. And then wrapping into that, knowing that the, the, the buyer is going to investigate things like the seller's financial statements. They're going to test the assets out, count them, of course, make sure they're all there, make sure they're free of liens, um, inspect the real estate, do environmental investigations. Um, so all of those things get built into sort of a, a global definition of due diligence. And that's why um, completing that process can take a very short period if due diligence is very simple or a very long time if due diligence reveals problems or, or a buyer discovers in the process that the due diligence process itself is much more complex than the buyer anticipated. Um, um, then regarding the legal documents, um, depending on the deal, there's a long list of those documents. Purchase and sale agreement, maybe a merger agreement, employment agreements, earn-out agreements, consulting agreements maybe a promissory note, a deed of trust, or a mortgage, um, certainly a security agreement if any seller financing is going to be involved, an allocation schedule for the taxes, a bill of sale to transfer the assets, the stock or equity transfers themselves if you're doing a stock deal, assignment assumption agreement, and then, and then several other leases, possibly guarantee agreements, um, non-competition agreements, opinions of counsel, um, escrow agreements, and on and on. Um, each of these documents that I just mentioned presents its own unique issues um, that in most cases must be negotiated carefully. That process can also be painful for buyers and sellers. So that's where I've seen intermediaries who are good at their jobs actively, actually add a lot of value. Um, because it's at that point where parties start to get their backs up about how documents are being negotiated. And sometimes, frankly, their attorneys do too. Um, that's where a, a, a good, calm, thoughtful intermediary can really help by, by blunting some of the effects of those negotiations where people start to get offended or insulted. So keeping people on track and moving towards closing can be the biggest part of the value in intermediary ads. Um, and whether you're a buyer or seller, these things really matter, which is why fifty dollars to $100,000 in legal fees is not uncommon. Um, again, part of the broker's value can be to limit, get that needle moving closer towards fifty dollars than to one hundred, dollars um, and save you a fair amount of money um, if, if you're not negotiating tiny points that become 
as much about egos as they do about, about the, um, economic or legal issues. Um, so make and also make sure the attorneys you hire have at least a working knowledge of the equipment. Um, the more the better, and that they have significant experience in buying and selling businesses in this industry. There are lots of moving parts, as you know. Uh, failing to factor them in, um, uh, particularly the legal documents, can be a fatal mistake for both buyers and sellers. James, what should a seller be prepared to present to the to an interested buyer initially? In the in the in the way of financials or tax returns or whatever, and uh, I know sometimes people plan it a year or two in advance to get their their affairs in order, so to speak. Can you comment on that, please? Oh sure. Well, so so remembering that um, initially, you want to have you want to have a, a good solid confidentiality slash non disclosure agreement signed before you start disclosing anything material. Um, but at that point, you'll usually get an, uh, an initial due diligence list, a short due diligence list that'll have um, at least three years of P&Ls and balance sheets. You know, this late in the year, we're in October now. Um, um, you can expect a request for a stub period financial. They'll want you to get to as close to current year, um, um, at least through September um, um, initially, and then they'll want to take a look at your tax returns. They'll want at least a summary list of assets. Um, and don't be surprised if you get a request for a list of customers, which should, uh, which should perk everyone's ears up because, because if you leave with a list of customers, um, particularly if that list has contact information on it, um, you really, uh, that, that's one where most sellers pull back a little bit and say maybe we'll wait until the second round of due diligence before we go forward with that. Um, but generally speaking, summary financial statements, P&Ls and balance sheets, um, um, and, a, and a summary list of assets, facilities, um, those aren't bad things to disclose initially. See how you get down the road. See if the buyer remains interested. Um, and when you start to move towards more sensitive information, um, that's when you usually start having conversations about things like deposits. Um, and with deposits, if you're a seller, the more the merrier. You want to make those deposits non-refundable or at least include a breakup fee after you've disclosed information that could potentially harm your business if used to compete with you. James, have you, uh, I guess in the past, helped a buyer uh, with the bank financing when they go to the bank and, uh, and they're trying to borrow the money to to, uh, to buy a company? What are the banks typically well, sure. for? Sure. Yeah. There's uh, there's all kinds. There's there's levels at all. Uh, there's lenders at all levels. Um, we start with conventional financing because it's going to be the cheapest, um, but it's also going to require more down um, and excellent credit um, and and an excellent asset base. Um, many uh, uh, potential buyers uh, wind up going the SBA route, um, which, as you're probably aware, is, is fairly document intensive. Um, and requires a little time, but it's a really good deal um, for those who can manage to plow through the process. We do know um, several folks who are who specialize in SBA lending, so that's a that that's a very popular route. Um, then at the at the at the far more expensive end, um, there are hard money lenders out there. We know several of those as well, um, and they they are they are lending based on. Uh, their acknowledged risk criteria, and and and, uh, and that money tends to be more expensive, but it's it's out there if needed. Um, and some people um, will even um, do what's called credit card stacking, which is which is um, uh, taking cash advances on a series of credit cards to fund an acquisition. It's, it, that is not as common, but it does happen on occasion. Wow. James, in, in the two different equipment arenas, uh, that there's obviously rental companies, but then there's also equipment dealerships. And obviously the dealerships are not, uh, they're coming along more with more rental activity. But what do you see as a, is the biggest difference in trying to uh, acquire or represent a dealer versus a rental company? Well, um, so, so dealer valuations tend to be higher. 
um, those, those, those guys tend to be um, um, bigger and, uh, and have more elaborate operations. Um, so the due diligence process tends to take a bit longer, um, as does the negotiation process. Remember, the, the, the dealerships are dealerships for a reason. They're operating under dealership agreements with manufacturers that are absolutely critical and hugely valuable. Um, now, those, uh, if you've ever read any of those dealership agreements, what you'll see is um, they contain they they tend to contain very different transfer provisions, but almost universally they give the manufacturer a great deal of sway in terms of whether the uh, prospective buyer gets approved or not. Which means the the manufacturer holds, if not all the cards, significant cards. Um, so the, getting that process, getting the approval process underway very early is critical. Now, the thing is, is that manufacturer is going to approve a buyer based on the buyer's qualifications. So not every buyer is going to get approved, which means you have to get somewhat, uh, a few, at least a few steps down the, uh, down the path of selling to an identified buyer um, before you can even submit to a manufacturer for approval. Um, most, in most cases, unless the agreement says a manufacturer may, uh, may withhold its approval for any reason or for no reason, the implicit obligation of a manufacturer is going to be to, to not unreasonably withhold its approval. But then again, there's a whole other sort of legal framework around what's reasonable and what's not. Bottom line is, that's all about timing. You want to get into that manufacturer and request that approval as fast as you can if you've identified, if you're a dealer, what you think is a, is a qualified buyer. Um, on the rental company side, on the other hand, what's critical there is assessing the income stream. Right? I, I remember way back when I first started in this industry, when I went to get hired at Rentex, as a matter of fact, this question out of my mouth to the lawyers who were interviewing me for that job was, how do you factor in age and wear and tear and obsolescence on this equipment, which comprises your entire income stream? Because as a buyer, if you can't do that, you cannot know what you're buying. And as it turned out, um, that proved critical in several of the acquisitions. We wound up hiring experts to go in and assess specifically the, the quality of the income stream being generated by those assets and how long we could expect it to last after closing. So, so two fairly different models, um, two fairly different means of valuing businesses, and definitely two different paths towards getting those guys to close, uh, to close their sales. Right. And, you know, James, in my experience uh, in talking to owners, one of, the, one of the first questions always that comes out of their mouth is that, I'm concerned about my employees, that these guys have, uh, have a team of people who help them build a business and they want to make sure their employees are taken care of. What do you say? <laughs> well, of course they do, right? Um, uh, uh, part of the reason they've been successful um, enough to have a business worth selling is that they probably treated their employees well. And, and by the way, buyers, uh, it is not lost on buyers what the turnover rate is and, um, and, and, and the length of the average length of employment, um, longer term employees mean a lot. And they tend to, they tend to gravitate towards businesses with longer term employees because they don't want that business to be solely reliant on the expertise and the relationships held by the seller. Because once the seller exits, then what's the value of the business? So those employees tend to be much more critical to buyers um, than, than, than maybe it first meets the eye. So sometimes, not, not every time, but sometimes sellers worry more about, more about that than they have to. Those, those employees tend to be really important to buyers. And by the way, especially overseas manufacturer-type buyers who may be coming into the States, um, not completely not completely blind, but they're not going to have the same contacts or the same uh, the same local connections and expertise necessary to run that business effectively. But all that said, um, some of the things that you can do, some of the things you can work into a term sheet, as a matter of fact, right at the very beginning, are 
um, our continued employment contracts for a particularly key employee. And by the way, that can be, for those reasons I just stated, that can be just as valuable to the buyer as it is to the seller. Um, so getting those contracts negotiated up front is, is not only common, but appealing to both sides in, in more than half the cases I've dealt with. Right. So um, we're going to start to wrap up a little bit here. And so with all the stuff that we've talked about today, uh, can you give us three key takeaways that, uh, if we remember only them, will be in good position to move forward with the business acquisition or sale? Sure. Um, I, uh, actually, I have four. Um, number one, start with identifying your own objectives. Whether you're thinking of buying or selling a business, knowing what you're trying to accomplish is key to winding up in a good place. If you're a buyer, that might mean expanding strategically within your current market, expanding into a new market or something else. And you should know that before you start um, um, because you don't want to waste a, time, a lot of time looking for a business to buy that you ultimately realize won't fit into your current operation um, or your current plans if you don't have a current operation. If you're a seller, for the most part, that means knowing how much you need to sell for in order to fund your post-sale objectives in addition to the employee issues we were just talking about. So whether your post-sale objectives uh, economically involve retirement, a new business, or something else, put a number on it and then review your existing debts to make sure that after you pay them off, along with your taxes, your net purchase price or your, for your sellers, your net sale price will be enough to fund your objectives. Next, identify how best to achieve those objectives and get the agreement of all principals slash owners of your own business. In some cases, that'll mean organic growth, selling to one or more employees or hiring an intermediary slash broker. Whether that mean, whatever that means, um, um, write it down, make a plan, and make certain you have consensus amongst your company's owners. Um, the means you choose will dictate whether and when you achieve your goals. So choose carefully and don't leave yourself open to being second-guessed by other owners. The worst and most expensive way to achieve something in this arena is to start, stop, and then start again. Measure twice, cut once here. Um, third, keep it quiet. As I mentioned, a long list of deals have failed because somebody said too much too early. Get confidentiality agreements signed, and in any event, be careful with what you allow to be released and to whom. Loose lips think shit is famous for a reason. Don't think your own shit. Button it until after the check clears. And finally, four, accept the fact that the process will be bumpy and that negotiations with the other side will continue through closing and well after closing, particularly if you have a deal that calls for term payments, holdbacks, earnouts, leases, or other dealings that will require continued contact with the other side after closing. So be nice and prepare to be diligent and patient. Unless you close an all-cash deal, it ain't over till it's over. <laughs> James, in your experience, what do, you, what do you feel is the biggest hurdle in getting a deal done? Is it the Over price or? negotiation. <laughs> you know, honestly, once people understand deals, um, price winds up being a secondary issue in, in many cases. Um, that, it winds up taking a backseat to to the party's desire to get the deal closed. And that, it's shocking how many times that um, hinges upon the personalities involved. Um, once somebody gets sort of a burr under their saddle about oh, some particular deal issue, I've seen that kill or nearly kill far more deals than I've seen purchase price considerations kill or almost kill deals. Um, so, with all, with being as sensitive as I can be to the desires of both sides, um, redirecting their attention back to the economics of a deal is is usually a winning strategy. And, and, and if, if people can be moved away from emotional or ego-driven issues and towards economic issues, deals tend to go much, 
more smoothly and get closed much faster. Right. James, I really want to thank you for, uh, for being on the show again today uh, and all the valuable information you discussed. So how do people get in touch with you and me? <laughs> um, w- well, a couple of different ways. Um, so to WGL Consulting, uh, W for weight, G for Gates, L for Leon, that's Leon Kaufman, WGLConsulting.com is, uh, is our website. Um, our phone number is 888-614-8886. Um, and, and also, we, we can be emailed directly. Um, uh, mine is james at WGLConsulting.com. Uh, yours, Donald, is, of course, Donald at WGLConsulting.com. And Nancy's is Nancy at WGLConsulting.com. Um, feel free to email any of us um, with any questions, and we'll be glad to meet and discuss. Um, and as I said before, give a little perspective on, on the process and what's involved and maybe answer some questions that might be bothering you if you, uh, um, if you just need some clarity going in. Yeah. And, and James, I talked for a moment about the valuation uh, process. I think a lot of people out there say, I might sell, but I'm not really sure what my business is worth. Well, sure. Um, great point. So, so, <laughs> so what a business is worth. Uh, there, are, there are some commonly accepted metrics um, that drive that determination. Um, but I will tell you, um, you put, put any three valuation, in quotes, experts in a room, and you will come up with three different valuations for a business. Um, so knowing that going in means that you need to prepare it as a buyer or a seller to defend your valuation. Um, because what valuations wind up being is really um, much more about arguing points than they are about setting an exact dollar amount for an acquisition. Um, so, so make sure your valuation going in um, factors in at least a couple of valuation mechanisms. Um, I, my personal um, um, preferences are EBITDA multiples um, and discounted cash flows because I think that's what tends to matter most to people. I like to weight EBITDA multiples because I think more recent years tend to be more influential than prior years or future years. Um, so I, I like actual numbers, although I do see the value of, of discounting future cash flows, problem future cash flows is. And you can't predict what's going to happen in in in, in your in the world, much less your own market. Um, so it's it's while you have some indications of how your business is likely to perform, um, there's no guarantee that performance will remain what it is today for even one day further. Um, so and, uh, that said, everyone has a has their own preferences for uh, for building out those mechanisms, and you want to. Uh, you want to you want to understand yours, and you want to understand theirs if you're going to be able to negotiate effectively. Just remember that when day is done, you're going to be sitting across the table from someone else, just as convinced that your business is worth 75 percent of what your valuation says <laughs> it is, and so you're going to be arguing that with them and trying to come to something reasonable. If you're a seller, start high. If you're a buyer, usually start low, or but both be reasonable, and know that you're going to land somewhere in the middle. And, and just to further the discussion on, on valuation for, for just a moment, this is not a case where you have to fly to uh, Egypt, so to speak, to go visit someone. I would imagine that the valuations can all be done through uh, uh, agreements and, in fact, uh, emailing of numbers back and forth. So there's not a lot of expense to the person doing the valuation. Well, that's right. Um, in um, in in. You know, evaluation where 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 you pay someone to fly to a site to to do it, um, they happen. Um, but that's a you know, unless your your business you feel like your business value justifies spending twenty five to fifty thousand dollars to get your valuation done, um, you're probably not going to go to that extreme. What most sellers are looking for is a data point that's reasonably reliable that they can. Sell based on, um, and and argue credibly to a buyer who wants to pay them again. 
you know, 50% of that if they can get away with it. Um, that said, for, for large operations, um, maybe, maybe 75 million or more, um, uh, going to a site to conduct evaluation is, 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 uh, is, is not a bad idea. Um, but for, you know, for the average five to $10 million business, it's just not going to be economical to do that. Right. But that's why I wanted to let people know that it's not that difficult uh, just to submit numbers and, and get a value uh, for, for a simple valuation along the way. Well, I think we've covered about everything that, that uh, we've covered. Uh, again, Dan, I appreciate you being on the show today. Uh, so thanks for joining me. Uh, remember to get in touch with WGO Consulting. The number is 1-888-614-8886. You can contact James at james at wgoconsulting.com or me, Donald, at WGO Consulting. So, James, thanks again, buddy. Appreciate you being with me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. Remember, folks, in closing, that you can always listen on demand I hope some of the uh, issues brought up today either help to provoke more questions for you. Uh, if you'd like to be a guest, suggest a guest, advertise, or have a question, uh, feel free to contact me at rentalequiptalkradio at gmail.com. Uh, until next week, thanks for spending some of your valuable time with me today. Be safe and good renting, and remember, always make time for the things that make you happy to be alive. Talk to you next week. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Rental Equip Talk Radio. Be sure to join your host, Donald Charbonnet, next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.